How many of you remember the old hymn, In the Garden? Anybody? That was one of my grandma's favorite hymns. Uh, my grandmother, I should say, was about four foot eleven and had the squeakiest voice of uh, any woman I've ever known. Um, but Joe, she could play in the garden on the piano. It's about the only thing she could play on the piano. But there was a condition. She could play it if she had the hymnal with the shake notes. I still don't fully comprehend. You need to inform me later about shake notes. All I know is she couldn't really read music, but she knew something about shapes. And so she could play in the garden. Here's the way that uh, song goes, the first verse in the chorus. I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses. And the voice I hear falling on my ear, the Son of God discloses. And he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I am his own. And the joy we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. What a beautiful hymn. What a wonderful, prayerful uh, thought about our interaction with the Lord's interaction with us. Um, none of this has anything to do with anything about the message. I'm going somewhere with this. So this hymn, my grandmother's favorite, just last weekend, Karis got to spend some time with uh, Robin's mother, my, my, for those of you visiting with us today, my first wife who passed away's mother in North Carolina, got to spend some time together, and while there, came across a book that um, my wife was, was uh, Grammy's first child, and parents, you can identify with this, sometimes with your first kids, you do things you don't do with the rest of them. So she had this book, and everything Robin did that was different or cute or neat, she wrote down which has been a great find for the grandkids, and they've had a great time with that. One of the finds in that book was the fact that when this particular hymn was sung as, as Robin was growing up as a little girl, later on, uh, Betty, my mother-in-law, would learn, and, and Robin would later relate to me and to the kids, she thought that she had sang all her young childhood years, Mr. Bradshaw, Andy walks with us. Andy talks with us. Andy tells me I am his own. And she had wondered for years, who is Andy? That's the way it often is with children, isn't it? You can tell your own stories, something very similar from your childhood, the childhood of your children, your brothers, your sisters, whatever. As kids, we hear things a certain way. As kids, because we're kids and adults are adults, we can only partially understand. We don't fully comprehend what adults are saying, and it's sometimes years later, usually in our teens, maybe even into young adulthood, that we realize we totally misunderstood what our mom had said. We, we totally misinterpreted what dad had said. Something an adult had communicated to us, even though, looking back on it, they didn't mess up. They communicated the truth clearly and without error. So this is where you and I are going to be in the next three chapters of our study in the book of Romans. Paul will, will, will use Romans 9, 10, and 11 to unfold the clarifications of misunderstandings by the nation of Israel, the children of God, their father, 
of the ways of God in salvation from the Old Testament Scriptures. God spoke clearly in the Old Testament. He didn't misspeak or eclipse any clarity in, in, in the promises he gave and what he said in the Old Testament. But Israel as the nation, as a nation, had misunderstood many things, had misinterpreted many things spoken there. We continue this morning in our study of the book of Romans. We've been looking at this book under the heading of the gospel of the righteousness of God. Very simply, the book of Romans is about the good news that holy God, who demands perfect righteousness, gives us that righteousness that he demands as a gift to simply be taken by faith through the life, death, and resurrection of his son. Jesus became our righteousness. He paid the the, the penalty for all our unrighteousnesses. And he now lives to give us power and victory over sin. The gospel, the righteousness of God. We're going to begin to see in Romans 9 also that this book is about the fact that God is righteous and, and right in all he does, even when we can't understand. So, before we get into Romans 9, this, we won't do this every message through these three chapters, but this is the, the first one. So, I, I need to do a little more introduction, okay? Y'all with me still? Everybody still awake? Stay with me. This is important. Don't miss this part. It sets the stage for your understanding of all of Romans 9 through 11. And if you've ever read it or even sniffed around in that that section, it's tough to understand. You need this intro. So let me back up, read the last two verses of chapter 8 that we read earlier, where Paul says, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The amazing, unending love of Christ. A love for you and I who are in Christ from which we cannot ever, he says, by anything be separated. Now I want to read Romans 12, verse 1. Where Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, when you read Romans 8, 38, and 39, and skip over to Romans 12, verse 1, it seems like you could put them right together, doesn't it? Are y'all with me? I mean, it sure sounds like, after this great description of the love of God, the appeal of Romans 12.1 could follow right on the heels of Romans 8, could it not? In view of God's mercies, be living sacrifices. It just feels like that's where it ought to pick up. But y'all are good in math. And you know that I just said Romans 8 and Romans 12, and you know there's numbers in between there. There's three chapters in between those two sentences. Now, we learn something immediately about those three chapters by looking at these two sentences we just looked at. That is, first of all, what we learn is Romans 9 through 11 is clearly still about the mercies of God because at the end of Romans 11, when Romans 12 starts, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. So whatever 9 through 11 is about, it involves and is, is if, you, if, you, if you can think of it this way, there's, a, there's an umbrella truth over all three chapters called the mercies of God. The discussion really hasn't changed from Romans 8. 
It's just going to be had in a different way. And these verses we learn from Romans 12.1, these chapters are written not only to talk about us, to us about the mercies of God, but to move us to sacrificial lives of worship to the God of our salvation. So as we begin to work through these three chapters, do not lose sight of that. Rather, let that understanding made clear in Romans 12.1 that these chapters are about the mercies of God and they're meant to move us to be living sacrifices. Because Paul says, based on Romans 9-11 through and 1-8, through therefore, present your bodies in view of God's mercies as living sacrifices. And so let that understanding shape your hearing, your understanding of all the beautiful yet difficult truths that we will see over the next couple months in Romans chapter 9. But, let's get to it. What else is going on in Romans 9 through 11? Paul has made it crystal clear that the forgiveness of sins and being declared righteous before God and becoming God's children, His heirs, and living forever with our Father is not about... Being Jewish, being a descendant of Abraham, being a member of the nation of Israel, but about trusting God's Son, Jesus, who was sent to be our righteousness and to bring us redemption through His death on the cross and through His resurrection from the dead as, first and foremost, the Messiah of Israel, the Messiah of the Jews. But what about the nation of Israel that, as we're going to learn, as a whole rejected the Messiah, right? The Gospels record the fact that when Jesus came, the Jews said he was crazy. The nation as a whole rejected him. Some believed. More importantly, not just what about the nation that rejected the Messiah, what about God's promises in the Old Testament to the nation of Israel? How are we to understand how are we to understand the fact that, that although God made covenant promises to Israel, the majority of the nation rejected the fulfillment of those promises in Jesus, God's Messiah, sent through the lineage of King David to be Israel and the world's Messiah. Because you see, if God's promises to the nation of Israel have failed, as seen in the rejection of Jesus then how can we as Gentiles be sure that God is even able to keep all of the wonderful promises we've just been considering in Romans 8 about His love to us? How can we be sure? And so Romans 9 through 11 is perfectly placed, not arbitrarily placed in Paul's argument. Remember, Paul had never been to Rome he never met the Roman church at this point. He's writing to explain the gospel to him, And see, the deal would have been there would have been Jews all over the city of Rome. There, there would have been a, 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 a knowledge of the history of, of the people of God and the promises of God, even there in, in the capital of Rome. John Piper says Romans 9 comes after Romans 8 for this utterly crucial reason. It shows that the Word of God of God's covenant with Israel has not failed because it is grounded, that word, in God's sovereign, individually electing mercy. 
Romans 9 comes to show that God's word with Israel didn't fail. We're going to get into the weeds of how he does that through the next few weeks. But again, see the big picture. Understand everything that we deal with in the minutia in the big picture. Now, here's one final helpful preface. I know I'm doing a lot of that and introducing, but it's important. One final helpful preface before we dive in. Romans 9 is a series of anticipated questions and answers like, has God's, have God's promises to Israel failed because they're, as a nation, they've rejected the Messiah? But that's not the only question that's anticipated and answered. And, and so Romans 9 is a series of anticipated questions and answers, objections and explanations. So it's going to be important for your sanity over the next several weeks to remember that, perhaps for my safety, that you expect as you come to church for the next several weeks to leave the service with more questions than you had at the beginning of the service, okay? Can we just decide to be okay with that now, okay? And see, what will happen is next week we'll pick up a passage that answers the very question you end with today. I already know what question you're going to have at the end of this sermon. I'm going to tell you the question. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be like a magic trick, except it's not. It's the Word of God. I'm going to tell you the question that you're anticipating, but I'm not going to answer it today. I'm going to tell you that I'm going to answer it next week at the end of this message. So that's how it's going to go for the next several weeks. So can we just say this is going to be an enjoyable time of, 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 of study and, 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 and long term. We're going to have to stretch this thing out. We can't do this all in one time unless you want to be here about six hours. Anybody take her for that? Yeah, me either. So that's how it's going to go. Then ne- the next week, we'll have, there'll be another question raised, left unanswered until the next week. And this will be the pattern actually right on through the end of Romans 11. So here we go. I want to talk to you this morning from Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 13, and also chapter 10, verse 1, about living under sovereign mercy in compassionate prayer. Living under sovereign mercy in compassionate prayer. We're fixing to get deep in some weeds of wonderful truth, but here's a take-home. This is what I want you to leave here understanding. This is how I want you to think about this passage when you walk away today. Every believer must live humbly under God's sovereign mercy in our world as we compassionately weep and pray for the salvation of all who don't today trust Jesus. Every believer must live humbly under God's sovereign mercy in our world as we compassionately weep and pray for the salvation of all who don't today trust Jesus. So let's break this passage down. We're just going to take it as we go. Two points this morning. First of all, Paul's sincere anguish. Remember Romans 8, 38 and 39, or actually 8, 28 to 39. All the reality about God's love, God's sovereign love that that will keep us forever, from which we can never be separated. The chapter, chapter 9 begins with these words, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing, unceasing anguish in my heart. Why, Paul? For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. That is, his fellow Jews, the nation of Israel. They are Israelites, 
And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Paul had sincere anguish over the fact that his brothers and sisters, nationally speaking, bloodline speaking, the nation of Israel, his fellow Jews, were cut off and accursed because of their unbelief toward Jesus, their rejection of the Messiah. And Paul says, I have great sorrow, unceasing anguish. These are words that describe the, the, the... the, the pain and the anguish that we feel, the grief we, we feel when we lose a loved one unexpectedly. Paul's sincere anguish. Before we break this down, we need to remember something. Remember that once Paul was savingly apprehended by Jesus there on the road to Damascus and began proclaiming Jesus to be the Messiah of Israel, the only Savior for all the world, remember who it was that persecuted him the most. He was persecuted most severely by the very folks he here expresses uh, such sorrow and compassion for, the Jews themselves. Don't forget that there was many occasions he was physically persecuted by his own Jewish brothers and sisters because he was perceived as a blasphemer for saying that Jesus was the Messiah. Acts 14 verse 9, just as a a quick example, Acts tells us that Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and having persuaded the crowds, here's what they did to Paul. They stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city supposing he was dead. He couldn't walk. He wasn't moving. They thought he was dead. They dragged his body out of the city for the dogs to eat. They were done with him. Scriptures tell us the believers gathered around him, and he actually, I believe, was raised from nearly death. He probably wasn't dead, but he was almost dead. And God miraculously healed him and and used him. But but the Jews, these, these, these are the people about whom he says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish. And here's what I wish. I could wish, Paul says, that I were accursed and cut off. Here's how much I love Israel. Here's how much I love my own people, the Jews. I wish I could trade my salvation for the salvation of the nation of Israel. Wow. For the salvation of those people that stoned me outside of Lystra and left me for dead. That's how much I love them. Why? Because they're my kinsmen. And they're the people that God is so blessed. Did you see verses 4 and 5? To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants. God called them as a nation, as people. There in the, in the, in the tabernacle was the, the Shekinah glory. There was the Abrahamic covenant given, the Davidic covenant made by this God with Israel. 
It was only Israel that had the law of God, the the perfect and holy law of Almighty God. It was only Israel that had the temple worship, the right way to approach holy God. So holy is he, we don't dare approach him just however we choose. It was to them that the promises were made, the promises about Messiah, the promises about the whole world being blessed through the seed of Abraham to them belong the patriarchs, Isaac and Jacob, Abraham. And from their race, the text says, according to the flesh, is the Christ. Jesus was born a Jew of the lineage of David to a Jewish mother conceived by the Holy Spirit, by the seed of Almighty God, but even his earthly father, was a Jew. And so Paul says, because of God's mercy to me, I was just like them. I had all the blessings and all the the truth about God and even about Messiah, and I missed it. Paul said, I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I was a Pharisee. I, I, I mean, I, I, I kept the law as flawlessly as anybody's ever done it, and, and I, I did my very best, not perfectly, but I, I, I did pretty good. I was, a, I was a great Jewish religious leader. And yet God had mercy on me to open my eyes to see that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah of Israel. And so Paul says, even though they reject me, they call me a false teacher, they say I'm a blasphemer, Because I say Jesus is their Messiah, I love them and I would trade my salvation if God would save the nation. Again, why the anguish? We've already talked about it, verses 3 through 5. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh, because they were cut off. Because they were accursed apart from faith in Jesus Christ. Even though the nation of Israel was prepared by God for hundreds of years for the coming of Messiah, they didn't recognize Him. In fact, they rejected Him and remain as a whole cut off from Christ, cut off from the only Savior to be sent from God. It's like John says in his Gospel, chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, the true light which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He, speaking of Jesus, was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Listen, verse 11. He came to his own, who was his own? The nation of Israel, the Jewish people, and his own people did not receive him. This was what caused Paul such sincere anguish. But notice, secondly, the depth of his anguish. We've already been talking about this as well. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. We've been talking about it, so I don't want to dwell on that anymore except to apply it to you and me. Do you, do I, grieve over the fact that still today the majority of the Jews the world over, as well as many of our Gentile friends, neighbors, family members, co-workers, are cut off from Christ yet today. Do we have unceasing anguish? Do we live with deep sorrow? 
that some people you know reject Jesus today. According to Paul, we should. Amen? I mean, all of a sudden, this passage is going to get really deep and theological is really practical about our daily lives. Amen? Oh, that we would have the heart of Paul and overflow in sincere anguish for all who are cut off from Christ. If we do, by the way, then we'll see in our own lives what Paul reveals was real in his, and that is, lastly, under this point, the fruit of his anguish. Chapter 10, verse 1 tells us that the fruit of such anguish, this sincere, deep anguish Paul had, it it bore fruit in his life, that of compassionate prayer. Look at chapter 10, verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, Israel, is that they may be saved. My heart breaks that they've rejected the Messiah, that they don't see the beauty, the glory of God in the Messiah of Israel. But I don't just have a broken heart. I have a praying heart. I'm moved with compassion for them, not just to to hurt over it and, and be sorrowful over it, but to go to the Father and pray that he would open their eyes, that they might see the gospel and trust Christ. This is Paul's sincere anguish. But notice with me, secondly... This is where we get into some weeds, some tough stuff. God's sure word. We've seen Paul's sincere anguish. You and I should respond like Paul to lost men, women, boys, and girls who yet or who are yet to trust Jesus Christ, whether that's a proactive rejection of him or whether it's the nations that have yet to hear his name, yet to hear the message of the gospel, our hearts should break until they hear. And for those who reject the gospel, our hearts should break and we should pray until Jesus comes. I said in in our opening statement about those who don't yet believe today, because here's the thing you and I don't know, even before we look at war, fix, and see. We don't know who might believe tomorrow. Amen? There There was a man named Saul of Tarsus who was on his way to kill Christians... One day, that same day, God stopped him in his tracks and saved him. And he became the greatest preacher of Jesus Christ that's ever lived. You may not be talking to the next apostle, Paul. But that person that you think will never change and their perspective about Jesus could change, hear me, in the sovereign, under the sovereign grace of Almighty God today on a dime. And so we should live with Paul's sincere anguish. But notice God's sure word in verses 6 through 13. We're just going to kind of walk through it. Paul says in verse 6, because he anticipates what, 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 they're, what they're going to ask. He knows what, what, what the question is going to be. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. Paul, how can you say that? How can you say the word of God to Israel? All the promises made to the nation of Israel have not failed what about promises like Jeremiah 31, 33? I will be your God and you will be my people. But now you're saying, Paul, they've rejected God in his ways. They've rejected his Messiah. So how can it be that God's word has not, in fact, failed? How can you say that the word has not failed? If Israel as a whole has rejected its Messiah and is, as a whole, cut off from Christ. Here's what Paul says. Look more carefully at all that God has said. As verse 6 continues... It's not as though the word of God has failed. Paul, how can you say that? For, because 
Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but remember the promises, remember exactly what Scripture says in the Old Testament. Through Isaac, he quotes, shall your offspring be named. Abraham, it's not going to be through your first son, Ishmael. That's not, that's not how I'm working. That was a child you, you figured out naturally. You, you slept with Hagar, the servant lady, and produced a baby because she was still fertile and young. I'm not working that way. I'm working through promise, through Isaac. The one who at 100 and your wife at 90, y'all shouldn't have been able to have the one that I gave supernaturally. It's through him that I'll work. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, verse 8 says, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they, that is the twins Jacob and Esau, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she, she, Rebecca, was told the older will serve the younger, which, by the way, is right the opposite of how it works. The younger serves the older. The firstborn has preeminence in any given family in that culture. As it is written, and again, he's quoting Scripture all throughout here, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. It was not through the line of Esau, the oldest son that God worked. It was through the younger son, Jacob, the son of his choice that God worked. In short, the promises of God were not made to all ethnic Israel. Not all or who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. The promises of God were not made to all ethnic Israel in terms of every individual Israelite being saved simply because they were born Jewish. That's what Paul's saying here. The beneficiaries, rather, of God's promises are the children of promise, the text says. Who are the children of promise? Well, he told us. They are those whom God sovereignly chooses before they are even born, as verse 11 reveals, totally apart from anything they do or don't do, All of this in order that, the text says, God's purpose of election might continue, which purpose, by the way, is to show the world that salvation is, back to verse 11 again, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Paul has told us about this reality in the nation of Israel already from a different angle back in Romans chapter 4. That is the reality that not all Israel is part of the true, eternally saved by grace Israel. He told us back in Romans 4 that it was Abraham's faith in the promises of God about Messiah to come that was the basis for God to declare him forgiven in in righteousness. It wasn't Abraham's law-keeping. It wasn't what the Jews thought it was, his circumcision that made him right with God. Rather, it was his faith way before he was ever circumcised. And Paul says in Romans 4, it is only those Jews and those from other nations who share the faith of Abraham, those who trust God for righteousness like Abraham that are truly Abraham's 
children. And Paul in Romans 4 makes it clear there's Jews who believe Jesus to be the Messiah and are made righteous before God. And there are Gentiles who are not even part of the nation of Israel who trust Jesus and are made to be true children of Abraham. Here, Paul is going under the surface of our experience in terms of our faith in Christ to the ultimate cause of why some trust Jesus as Messiah and some do not. Namely, very simply, the sovereign mercy of God. Again, verse 11 makes it clear. As we discussed in, the, in, in, in past weeks, those whom he foreknew, those he predestined, verse 11 makes it clear that God does not look down through time and see what we will do and make a choice based on what he sees. In fact, verse 11 says just the opposite, doesn't it? It says, before they were born, God chose Jacob the younger before they did anything, right or wrong. In fact, he chooses the very opposite of what we would, would make sense based on works so that it is clear that salvation, his, that his purpose in, in, in election might stand, that salvation is of God's sovereign mercy to undeserving sinners. Everybody raise your hand. Of which we all are. All of us. Now, some of us in the room right now are thinking, that's simply not fair. I told you I could read your mind. We're at that place. That isn't just of God to do things that way. Paul knew that this would be our next thought, and and he writes out these things in verse 14 and then proceeds to deal with it, which is next week's message, which I'm not going to preach today, but listen to verse 14. Just be amazed how Scripture reads your mind. What shall we say then, after we read the words, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? He knew what you were thinking. He knew where your mind was going. He knew how the truth that he had already spoken to you, what it would provoke in your, in your human heart and mind and in mine. That's next week's message. not preaching it today. You're left with a question I can't answer for you today. Because my son's getting engaged as we speak. And we're fixing to check out of here and go to an engagement party. But let me wrap up with this thought. And I want you, I'm, I'm serious, I want you to think deeply. Please, I beg you if, you, if you trust me in the least, I don't want you to trust me, I want you to trust the Word of God ultimately, but if you trust me in the least, I, want, I beg you right now to do something. Every week for the next several weeks, do not just react to what we're talking about. And let your emotional reaction override your brain and your serious study of the words that we're looking at in Scripture, okay? Because this is the territory we're in. This is where it gets easy to do that. And we start saying things like, well, God, that's just not just. So this is the thought I want to leave you with. If God had chosen to deal with humanity only on the basis of complete and perfect justice slash fairness, stay with me, then he would have sent every last human being straight to hell, no pass and go, no collecting $200, because all are sinners that fall eternally short of the holiness and the glory of Almighty God. But 
God chose to have mercy on his elect and sent his son to secure their salvation by enduring the punishment they deserve. Hear me, mercy is the very opposite of justice. It is God not giving us what we deserve, not giving us what is fair and just, which would be eternal death and hell because of our sin. I don't know about you, but I don't want God to be fair. I'm thankful that God is merciful. The old hymn is amazing grace, not amazing wrath. And yet when we come to passages like these three chapters, sometimes we're more amazed by wrath than we are by grace. I want you to take these things home and and, and roll them over as you read the text. Because you see, wrath is deserved. It should have been what God did based on his holiness and his justice, but God was merciful. And he gave grace and righteousness to us as a gift through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus to be received as a gift by those who will, in his sovereign and electing mercy, receive it by faith. It's amazing that God was merciful at all. It's amazing that he didn't pour out justice and wrath on all. So be amazed by his mercy. I heard this illustration. This may help. Trust me, we got a lot more of this discussion to have, and we got plenty of time to do it. So again, Just take this illustration, maybe this will help. So let's just suppose I had five friends. I don't have that many, but let's suppose I had five friends. And they all got together. Something demonic possessed them. They decide, they decide that they're, that they're going to go rob a bank. And, and I say, look guys, it's a bad idea. Y'all not, I mean, it's not a good idea. We don't care. You're an idiot. You know, whatever. They're going, they're going to do their thing. Well, there's five of them. I, I mean, look at me. I got a few friends and they're all bigger than me. They're bigger than me. I try to restrain them. I doesn't work. They keep going. I'm able to hang on to one and I just I just hold him. Like till my arms about to fall off, like an hour, two hours go by. We hear the sirens. The other four get arrested, thrown in jail. That deal went bad. They killed somebody in the robbery. They're in jail for life. It's over. And this is not a perfect illustration. Because the difference between me and God is that I wasn't able to restrain anymore. God chooses not to restrain anymore. But here's the deal. Those four that went to jail for life, can they blame me? Huh? Y'all tracking? And, and, and the guy that was graciously restrained by me and, and miraculously, in this case, by me, can he take credit for not going to jail for life? You get it? It's, it's a human illustration. It's not perfect. But maybe that helps. Paul has sincere anguish for all of his fellow Jews 
who are cut off from Christ in their unbelief, and he constantly prays that some might come to trust Jesus as their Messiah, being fully aware of and not in any way eclipsing the absolute sovereignty of God and choosing to whom he gives his everlasting salvation mercies. And so should we also live, church. Every believer must live humbly under God's sovereign mercy in our world as we compassionately weep and pray for the salvation of all who don't today trust Jesus. Let's pray together.